Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmoodlock. Thank you so much to those of you who are subscribing on patreon.com slash irregnata, I believe. Uh, unruled in Latin, feminine, singular, isn't it? And of course, even if you can't afford to subscribe, uh, you know, contact me. We can work something out, for one thing. We're on Twitter as well at, at at Irregnata, by the way, if you didn't know that. And yeah, feel free to, to reach out. There's things we can work out. I, you know, it's a, uh, at the very most uh, of, of the kind of commodification of this thing uh, that I want to have is, is kind of a free exchange of gifts, right? It is not absolutely required. But uh, if you can help out, that's great. Uh, we can get a free exchange of gifts going, and then you get access to the Patreon uh, episodes, and you get access to the Discord server, which at the moment is functioning largely as kind of a notebook for me and a scrapbook for me to put things in uh, almost uh, in preparation for episodes, actually, if anything. And uh, you all are welcome and encouraged to comment on there and discuss on there. And it's actually been picking up. People are, are reacting to things and saying, interacting on there. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. It's really been amazing to hear from some of you who have enjoyed the work on here. You know, this is things that I don't normally get to talk about in my day job too much. And so it's just extremely gratifying to receive uh, these kind comments, you know. As we were also discussing, you know, the... Uh, we want to combat parasocialism, perhaps. Uh, I'm, a, I'm well aware that, uh, you know, uh, there's a possibility. It, even if uh, most of you are a shower of feds, uh, I'll take it. I'm still really happy to hear your kind words. Thanks so much, and all the best to you as well. Uh, organize your bot farm. Organize uh, as a fed and, and you know, because, you know, you, you face it, you're, they're not going to let you in the bunker anyway. Not in the good seats, not in the good chambers, right? You, you come on now, come on. You can you can organize, and that's what you should do. You should organize. Uh, everyone listening, uh, organize, but don't tell me about it. Don't tell me about it. That's that's the model here. 
we're a little bit Maoist uh, here. You know, everybody should be a little bit Maoist, I think, um, depending on your goals. I think Maoism helps helps those who uh, it should help. But be, be decentralized. Uh, do things in real life. Don't talk about... Uh, there should be certain things you do uh, that you don't talk about online at all. You should, you should cultivate parts of your life that are completely offline. Let that be there, right? And you have that. And create circles, right? I would recommend creating a reading group. A reading group. To read books, yes. To read history, to read theory. How, does, how has the world been changed in the past? How, it's particularly relations of production. That's what I think is meaningful to change in the world. Uh, and that's what has changed in the past 6,000, 7,000 years. We are at a climactic moment in that story, that particular crescendo of class struggle. That is a real story that is happening, I think. And if... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying the new uh, David Graeber, David Rungrow, The Dawn of Everything. Uh, but you know what? I really do kind of come down on one side uh, with respect to the introduction there where, uh, you know, they're saying, well, there wasn't really a beginning of anything. You know, there's nothing is really happening. Um, well, yeah, ultimately, in an ultimate sense, in a cosmic sense, that is true. I don't believe that cosmically... Um, yeah, anything is happening. But but at the same time, you know, if there's no cosmic narrative, then everything is might as well be a cosmic narrative. Everything is meaningful if you make it meaningful. And what could be more meaningful than, you know, the panorama of the last 6,000, 7,000 years of human history? That's all of human history. That's the history of class struggle. That's the history of class society and the state and everything else that we talk about in this podcast from a kind of broad perspective, right? So, uh, and we do that by reading. You know, one of the things I would really hope to teach you, to uh, teach you to fish, as they say, uh, teach you to read, right? Teach you to read. Now, and to read texts, first of all, right? To, to read people's words, to read reality, right? To read the world around you and to see how does it move? How does it, what are the laws of motion? What are the relations of production? And how can these things be changed? How can these things be changed, right? And, and so that is what you can do in your reading group. Uh, if you don't think there's anyone around you physically who is like-minded, ask around a little bit. Talk to people a little bit. See, see what kinds of chances you can get to interact with others and build IRL relationships. And I think you'd be surprised, ultimately. But that's my recommendation for you. Reach out to someone that you've never talked to before and uh, just kind of feel them out. What are, you know, what are, and, and you can, you don't have to be exactly on the same page about everything. But uh, if you find someone congenial, you can start a reading group. You'll read books together, yes, but you'll also read the world around you and see how you can build the kingless generation. The old world is already pregnant with the new and labors to give birth to the new world. Uh, it is coming. The productive forces of humanity have grown such that there's just less and less ability to even own means of production and less, less ability to have different relationships to production and thereby different class positions 
among people. And the ruling classes are desperate to hold on. Uh, but we must uh, survive and persist and watch carefully, sometimes maybe silently, but read, right? Learn to read and, and read well. I think that's step number one for everybody, for, for me as well. And I hope that I can be of some help here as I, as I try to go through this. Speaking of pregnancy, we have for today, I want to deal with one of the many rulers and powers of the air against we must against whom we must do battle to build the kingless generation. And one of that is patriarchy. The power of patriarchy uh, arises at a certain point in human history. It really does. And to guide us through that, there's no better, no one better than Fred, uh, old Frederick Engels, and uh, the origin of the family, private property, and the state. He's writing at a time when, obviously, vocabulary was was. There's no vocabulary in Europe other than a very derogatory vocabulary for what is considered primitive, right? Uh, although, of course, at this in this around here, uh, we are kind of primitivists. Maybe I don't know. We're not really primitivists because, of course, uh, we would want to use all of the productive forces of society now. Humanity has all of this technology and things, but we just recognize that the the real human nature is one that is cooperative and equal, equal, egalitarian, and uh, share, built on sharing, yeah, and, and peace, right? That's what people do when you leave them to themselves. We've discussed how human nature is something that the ruling class desperately engineers and tries to pervert and mutate to make us more competitive, to make us more violent, aggressive toward each other, Right? Well, that's what Gladio is. Yeah. And that's been going on for a long time. That's been going on for a long time. Uh, but today, patriarchy is really interesting because, in fact, we realize when we really get into both archaeology, archaeological evidence, and evidence of really ancient literature, and then also evidence of peoples that have maintained slightly more, we'll say, natural human relations into the early modern period, we know quite a bit about various indigenous peoples around the Americas, Africa, Hawaii would be one. Uh, we know that before, there was a time before, in a way, the birth of the father. Uh, the, a child, a new child comes into the world from the body of its mother. And so that's who you, you know, uh, that's who is sort of naturally uh, the master of society in a certain way, right, is, is the mother. Uh, Engels talks about mother right, right? He has a transition from mother right to father right. And this goes together with accumulation of surplus and then monopolization of that surplus, primitive accumulation of that surplus, and then the desire to pass that on within a certain family group and this is really the birth of the family uh, as opposed to, you know, the common family of the entire group of human beings that is living together uh, in any given area, right? That is much more 
what happens in some indigenous American societies, though not others. Right? We do see, even Engels knows a whole bunch of details here. But the pattern that he identifies is that the more sur monopolization of surplus that you have, the more likely you are to have the birth of the father. The father becomes, and that father then monopolizes and says, this woman, and probably this woman and this woman, right, are my wives and no one else's. The men become the sort of subjects, the sort of stable nodes in society, and, and not the, the women, right? In those older matrilineal societies, you have... Uh, first of all, group marriage within uh, the, the, a certain generation. People would have sex with kind of who they wanted to. And maybe that would often be the same person or a couple of people maybe. Uh, I don't know. But uh, that resulting children would all be considered, even if they're sort of cousins by our reckoning, right? They would all be considered brothers and sisters. And then at the same time, uh, maybe potential uh, sexual partners. So there's a much larger group. And then the degree to which someone would be a potential sexual partner would be along a certain kind of gradient or something, you know, depending on how close they're related to you and to your mother, right? The center of your world is going to be your mother. And the men who are the same age as your mother are all your fathers. And for each of those fathers, all of the children that are born to women the same age as them are their children. This is my children, you know. So there, right there, there's something we can kind of learn for our modern society and for the kingless generation. If we're going to have a world without monopolization of private property and surplus, right, as opposed to personal property, you know, you, if you are using a toothbrush or something, you don't have to share it. Although Marx and Engels had a toothbrush that they shared. Interesting different culture there but uh yeah and your house that you live in right people have their personal property and that's not the same as private property walling off things like land especially means of production when you say that oh this is mine and only this person can use it and again right the very first private property in a certain way is the body of the mother the body of the woman uh because that is the means of production of new human beings Right. And that gets instrumentalized at a certain point and in, in what Engels calls the historic defeat of the female sex, a transition from mother right to father right. And so communist feminists like Alexandra Kolontai, who is a fascinating figure, you should read up all about her. Uh, Kristen Godsey is a scholar who uh, even has a podcast called AK-47, Alexandra Kolontai. Uh, 47 works by Alexander Kolontai was the original impetus of that title, I believe. But she was a member of the Central Committee of the Soviet Union together with Lenin. And she is responsible for the first uh, national policies of providing maternity leave and childcare leave and daycares in the 1920s, 1930s. This is a time, obviously, like... Women can't even own a bank account in their own name in America until the 1970s, yeah? So this is extremely forward-thinking stuff. And she as well, you know, there's a, a slogan, abolish the family, right? Uh, there, I was seeing some 
back and forth about this on Twitter recently in certain quarters too. And it's a perennial kind of sticking point for a lot of people. Uh, but I would like to, you know, in view of this actual deep history of class struggle and the history of the arising of patriarchy and the way that uh, semi, you might call matriarchal, uh, right? At least like decentralized, more decentralized family and kinship structures that are not specialized to pass on private property, right? That's what patriarchy actually is, is about passing on privatized property and it grew around that and then you have the bourgeois family under industrial capitalism which again is you know, it's specialized in certain ways for that epic right and so when we look back we talk about it's really interesting and funny to, to think deeply about right-wing dreams of restoring the traditional family because the traditional family in so many ways is something that's only goes back to industrial capital maybe, but we like imagine that it's feudal or something and the feudal family is maybe what we want. But that too, if you actually read things from those time periods, uh, you get all kinds of different results that you would not expect. Uh, and so we're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to read from maybe the most famous Japanese play of all, Chushin Gura, the, the loyal retainers and their revenge and the gender politics in actually the most famous scene from that that is most uh, prized and sort of only the most skilled kabuki actors get to act that that scene um, there's a lot of gender there and it's really really different from anything that even modern right-wing Japanese politicians talk about and have nostalgia for as the traditional Japanese family okay and uh, so there's this very big and complicated story. So then when it comes to the question, what should we do going forward, right? Um, well, you know, I, I do think there is some ways in which uh, very misled and, and controlled opposition, uh, fake left is, uh, can end up, uh, whether they mean to or not, contributing just to the atomization of society. With, with things like, you know, calls to abolish the family. But it ultimately comes from this very real theoretical point, not a theoretical, it's, it's a concrete historical point about the reality of where family structures, other than these more universal ones, really come from, right? And it's a, it's a moment of privatization. The father, right, the birth of the father is about saying, this is my... Uh, wife and thereby you can say she only has sex with me therefore her children are my children and the father is born and my children inherit my property my children inherit my property right and th those other schmucks who are not my children do not inherit my property they don't get it they don't get my property okay so this is uh, that's the core moment there right uh, and there are even in the Japanese Empire, you know, there's a really interesting story by Nakajima Atsushi from 1942 called Mariyan. And he's a kind of anthropologist who was down in Palau and sort of working with local indigenous women who were in a mat matrilineal anyway society there. 
And it's about him and his other Japanese friend having this kind of weird homosocial relationship as they um, do their experiments on or sort of like, you know, observe together their material for, for their experiments, which is a local woman named Marian. And that's her name, right? It's actually, I have it right here. Marian to you know, watashi no yoku shitteru hitori no tominjo? How do you... It's it's a little it seems very like dehumanizing actually. Toming onna no namai de aru. So it's a, a an islander woman, a female, an island female, uh, who who we know and uh, very well, who I know very well, and she has gone to a woman's university in Tokyo, and so she's received a Japanese education, and they're kind of like massaging the matriarchy out of her as part of modernizing right japanese colonialism is all about modernizing the fellow asians but always according to a european standard so there's this funny kind of double like it's it's actually really very foreign standards even to a lot of asian cultures but you know and in this case you have a culture that is matrilineal and uh you know japan is not and in enforcing patriarchy on them for the first time is, is sort of part of uh, the process of modernization that they are so kind-heartedly forcing on uh, these people in Palau, right? So I won't dwell on that one too much. There's, uh, there's a lot uh, that I have, but uh, let's jump right back to ancient Sumer. I have a scribal exercise, which is kind of a, a sweet little love letter of a man named Lou Digira, who, which is a common name, apparently. It seems to be kind of just like nobody in particular. I don't think that this is supposed to be a particular historical figure or something, but he's, he has a letter to his mother, and it's a sweet little kind of Mother's Day card kind of thing. I think what you can see here, you can see the, the, the privatization of the mother has definitely occurred, but certain things have not progressed quite as much. You know, this is something you can say in general, I think, about a lot of the Sumerian literature. That That's what my take often is on a lot of this stuff, is that, oh, you can see, okay, we have the grain state, we have feudalism coming in, uh, but it isn't solidified, really. It's maybe only been around for a thousand years, or like several hundred years or something, right? So all of this stuff is very, like, solidified, but, but may, maybe only just, right? So this is a fun little conceit. It's, it's also, we get to a view of sending a message. It begins, Royal Courier, start the journey. I want to send you to Nibiru. Deliver this message. You are going on a long journey. My mother is worried. She cannot sleep. Although the way to her woman's domain is blocked, deliver my letter of greeting into her hands as she keeps asking the travelers about my well-being. Then my mother will be delighted and will treat you most kindly for it. This is something that you see in a lot of other Sumerian and Akkadian literature. Uh, there isn't a money economy, so you sort of pay people for doing things by just like feeding them food, feed them a meal or something. Even like a doctor goes and heals someone. And it's like, oh, we'll just, you can eat here, if you, you know, several times, um, come by anytime, eat, right? Same thing here. And this is how you would send a message. You, you say the thing to the person, they remember it and they go run and then they tell it to the person 
and the person who received the message, as we see, right, um, she'll treat you most kindly. So, uh, and she lives in a woman's domain. Women, this is something we see, especially with the grain state. You know, we get patriarchy back in hunter-gatherer days uh, to some degree, right? It's going to be late hunter-gatherer days. But then really with the grain state, we start to see separate living quarters and separate uh, work regimes, right? Uh, women doing domestic work and all of this. And we also see skeletons, female skeletons get much smaller. The women actually stop eating nearly as well. Uh, we can see the opposite thing in like Hippocrates, the, the father of medicine, right? He writes about in his airs, waters, and places, where he's talking about the different kinds of human beings and the way that their natures are determined by the airs and waters of the places where they live, whether it's hot or cold or wet or whatever. And he sort of has this kind of interesting racial uh, theory or ethnic sort of e theory of ethnic determinacy. Uh, although it has nothing to do with white supremacy, of course, that arises from the age of European conquest. He just gets done, uh, this is chapter 17. He's just gotten done talking about Asia, such as the condition of the inhabitants of Asia, and in Europe is a Scythian race dwelling around Lake Myotis, which differs from the other races. Their name is Sauromatai. Uh, and so these are representative of Europeans for Hippocrates, at least. And you, this is typical. You, you do see, you know, the Greeks sort of think of themselves as being in the center of the world, as a lot of people do. And... Europe is on one side, Asia, and then you have Africa, right? And if anything, again, just to really contrast with the early modern world that we all, the early modern and, and after kind of worldview, that, which is all that we tend to know, where Europe is like the center of everything we, we think, uh, definitely not the case here, right? What is the representative thing of... Uh, Europe, it's these hunter-gatherers, pastoralists. They're, uh, you know, they go around with their cows and pigs and stuff, and they live in wagons, and they're flabby and fat and lazy. He, he's really not impressed with them at all. But one of the things that I want to highlight about this account is that they uh, have gender relations that are much more equal, and they're not exclusively directed toward production of heirs to inherit property in the way that they become under the grain state. And so Hippocrates thinks of this as being very, very sick. And, you know, they have these illnesses. And, and of course, his big medical theory is that bad air and too much water or, you know, too much heat, too much cold, something like this, will cause diseases, right? Uh, that's his big thesis so he's fitting it into that but we can read between the lines and see oh they have less sort of clearly defined gender roles and uh they they treat transgender people uh in in a perhaps a very matter of fact way that horrifies hippocrates right 
the women are much more active. They're freakishly active. And that's the first thing that he talks about, actually. They're, they're women, so long as they are virgins. Ride, shoot, throw the javelin while mounted, and fight with their enemies. They do not lay aside their virginity until they have killed three of their enemies. And they do not marry before they have performed the traditional sacred rites. A woman who takes to herself a husband no longer rides unless she is compelled to do so by a general expedition. They have no right breast, for while they are yet babies, their mothers make red-hot a bronze instrument constructed for this very purpose and apply it to the right breast and cauterize it so that its growth is arrested and all its strength and bulk are diverted to the right shoulder and right arm. So this would be uh, for drawing a bow, right? I don't know if the, your muscle would really get bigger, uh, but at any rate, then the breast would not get in the way of a bowstring if you're right-handed. That makes sense, right? And we see uh, the great majority among the Scythians become impotent, do women's work, live like women, and converse accordingly. Such men they call anaries. Now the natives put the blame onto heaven and respect and worship these creatures, each fearing for himself. Right? So this is a great culture clash for Hippocrates. But um, we see transgender people being very common and accepted here. He thinks that this is a disease and there must be, it must have something to do with them riding on horses too much and they probably um, just hurt their balls or something. And in general, Hippocrates thinks that human beings are kind of like bread in an oven and if they're too cold, if they live in a place that's too cold, they'll be uh, soft and flabby and too moist, right? Uh, the lower balls are as, are as moist as the bowels can be. Yeah, not the, bo the bowels, actually, is what he thinks is too moist. For the belly cannot possibly dry up in a land like this with such a nature and such a climate. But because of their fat and the smoothness of their flesh, their physiques are similar, men's to men's and women's to women's. So we're Well, this actually matches very well with things we know from archaeology. James C. Scott has a note on fertility and population, which is really interesting. The latest research on right, the Neolithic grain complex uh, shows us some interesting things, right? Uh, an attentive reader might not only be puzzled by the rise of agrarian civilization, but might wonder how, 
In light of the pathogens Neolithic cultivators faced, this new form of agrarian life managed to survive at all, let alone thrive. The short answer, I believe, is sedentism itself. Despite general ill health and high infant and maternal mortality vis-a-vis -vis hunters and gatherers, it turns out that sedentary agriculturalists also had unprecedentedly high rates of reproduction, enough to more than compensate for the also unprecedentedly high rates of mortality. Yeah, you see, like, women's bodies become much smaller because they become iron deficient more easily. Menstruation causes you to lose iron. And if you're not eating a lot of meat, if you're relying entirely on grain, which the typical ancient peasant is doing, then uh, you'll be malnourished much more easily. And women just become much smaller in stature and just physically weaker. Right. I think this will have contributed to the historic defeat of the female sex. Right. But and then you have this w this weird flip side of that where high rates of reproduction happen. So actually, Hippocrates thinks that these hunter gatherers, these primitive uh, white flabby uh, Europeans. Uh, oh, that's another interesting thing. He talks about the whiteness of their skin. Right. Um, as proof of their poor development, in fact. So he's definitely doesn't understand anything about modern white supremacy. Right. He thinks that they're poorly developed, um, and that's why they're white. Uh, <clears throat> right, but they, uh, they having a low weight rate of reproduction, that's normal, in fact. Where, in fact, uh, the Greek women around Hippocrates living under the grain state, they're the ones who are abnormal, right? The effect of the transition to sedentism on fertility has been convincingly documented in contemporary studies by Richard Lee, comparing newly settled with still mobile Ung Bushmen women, as well as other studies making more comprehensive comparisons of fertility between farmers and foragers. So these will be some of the hunter-gatherers that survived into the uh, 20th century in southern Africa. Yeah. Non-sedentary populations typically limit their reproduction deliberately. The logistics of moving camp regularly make it burdensome, if not impossible, to have two infants who must be carried at the same time. As a result, the spacing of children of hunter-gatherers is on the order of four years, a spacing that is achieved by delayed weaning, abortifacients, and neglect or infanticide. Uh, their women had abortifacients. They had herbs that would allow them to control their reproduction in almost every region of the world until modern industrial capitalism with its imperative of producing the industrial reserve army of labor, right? That is all of the desperate, desperate workers who cannot get enough work and they have to starve and die in the street. The capitalist requires a super abundance of workers and so they therefore require all the common people to be pumping out babies just as fast as they possibly can. Uh, you know, this was always the case under feudalism. It's also very good for a state to have more workers. And so they would be encouraging um, unsustainable kinds of rates of reproduction. But it really takes on, it goes on to a new dimension in the 19th century. All of the, these machines in the factories were created with tiny little gaps there's a, they're they're all actually built on a scale just so that a child of 8 years old 9 years old their fingers will be able to reach in and sort of make all the adjustments that need to be made and so on right and this is exactly the um 
children that are being worked to death by the time they're 15 or something by working 16 hour days every day. Right. And, they, and you want more and more of those. If there aren't a super abundance of them, well, then they might start demanding higher wages or a shorter work week or something. Right. Uh, but meanwhile, for hunter gatherers, right, you're moving camp and women have herbs. They had herbs in Japan. You, you hear from missionary records. Right. And they're horrified by that. But, uh, you know, they already have like much more. The foundation has been laid for capitalism in late medieval Europe by that time. And that has to do with, you know, an imperative to multiply, multiply the number of people, right, with no, and that's a class, that is an element of class struggle, right? It can be an element of class struggle to, to limit reproduction as well. And I think we're, you know, we're seeing there's some troubling kind of eugenics uh, trends today. Uh, and there have been those as well at different times. That's another weapon the, the ruling class uses, eugenics versus also removing any ability to control reproduction, right? Uh, but we see that that goes back actually quite a ways, quite a ways. Um, furthermore, some combination of strenuous exercise with a lean and protein-rich diet meant that puberty arrived later, ovulation was less regular, and menopause arrived earlier. Um, yeah, he talks about, Hippocrates talks about irregular menstruation as well. Among sedentary agriculturalists, by contrast, the burden of a much shorter spacing of children as experienced by mobile foragers is much reduced. And as we shall see, the greater value of the children as a labor force in agriculture is enhanced. By virtue of sedentism, menarche is earlier, that means the beginning of menstruation with a grain diet infants can be weaned earlier on soft foods and by virtue of a high carbohydrate diet ovulation is encouraged and a woman's reproductive life is extended given the disease burden of agrarian society and its fragility the demographic advantage of farmers over hunter-gatherers might have been quite small but the thing to remember in this context is that over a period of 5,000 years like the miracle of compound interest the eventual difference became massive for example, if one computes doubling times for different rates of population, um, different rates of reproduction, it turns out that an annual rate of 0.014% doubles population in 5,000 years, while a rate of 0.028%, still minuscule, doubles population in half that time, 2,500 years, and of course doubles again to a total five times as great after 5,000 years. Given enough time, the small reproductive advantage of farmers was overwhelming. Yeah, but and then but <laughs> the quality of life, the quality of life, you know, that you have, um, you know, I th I really think that class society only started providing a, a greater quality of life than hunter gathering to a majority of its people within the imperial core and in the twentieth century. The post-war twentieth century is the time when, you know, finally a little bit for a small minority of people, all of this sort of paid off in terms of quality of life. Um, that's kind of amazing to think about. The demographic expansion, if the crude order of magnitude we are using is realistic, of world population from 4 million to 5 million over 5,000 years seems puny indeed, as the proportion of Neolithic farmers to hunter-gatherers was far greater in 5,000 BCE than in 10,000 BCE. It is quite likely that even in this bottleneck period, the grain farmers of the world were demographically overtaking hunter-gatherers. And of course, but still, uh, even 300 years ago, 
two thirds of humanity were still outside the state. Anyway, you know, maybe they were doing agriculture and not strictly hunter gatherers, but they didn't have class society yet. That's really the last 300 years that we've really cranked into high gear. And that curve has just shot up into a straight vertical line in, in many regards. So the two other possibilities are that many hunter gatherers were taking up agriculture by choice or force or that the agrarian pathogens that had become endemic and less lethal to farmers were devastating the still immunologically naive hunter gatherers with whom they came into contact, much as European pathogens killed a great majority of the New World's population. Yeah, it's always uh, people in so-called civilization are incubating all these diseases and things. You see that even in Sumerian literature sometimes. There's glimpses of that. And the hunter-gatherers who, um, you know, because of this, they actually need lower uh, standards of uh, hygiene, as we saw with the, the Viking Rus, right, in uh, Ibn Fudlan's a mission to the Volga, you know, you have all the Vikings sort of washing their faces in a, the same bucket of spit and snot and everything. Well, they don't, you know, they don't need super high standards of sanitation because they don't live in crowded cities where diseases are incubated. But then by the same token, their immune systems are not constantly used to warding off all of these highly developed uh, pathogens, which have been in an arms race an immunological arms race with humanity for thousands of years, right, within so-called civilization. So, but all of that is to say that, you know, there's this big change in fertility. There's a big change in fertility with the grain state, and that's that really accelerates patriarchy in a different way. And that's part of talking about sort of the woman's quarters. That's where the mother is going to be, Right. This text is a scribal exercise, people who would be studying to become a scribe uh, and maybe staying uh, somewhere away from their family home, maybe for the first time in their lives. They're going to school to be a scribe. And this is a scribal exercise that they do. So you can imagine how they would kind of relate to it, right? And it's a man writing a letter home to his mother. She's been asking the travelers about my well-being, and he wants to delight her with this message. And it also has a delightful structure that maybe I'll wait to explain when we really kind of get to the end of it. Um, we'll just launch into it. I think it's really interesting to read these texts that are from such a different time and just let the really alien language kind of just wash over you and... and show you new possibilities of human consciousness that you didn't know existed, but have just been forgotten for thousands of years, um, right? And this is from a time when class society was newer, patriarchy was newer, right? And you can feel that as well, I think, here. So she keeps asking the travelers about my well-being, um, but give her this message and she'll be delighted and she'll treat you most kindly for it. In case you should not recognize my mother, let me describe her to you. Her name is Shat Eshtar, blank, blank, by her words, blank, blank. Right, we have some blanks in the text we, where we can't read it. Her body, face, and limbs and outer appearance are blank, blank, blank. So describing her appearance is not like a taboo or anything, right? Like the, the female body can often become a uh, property of the men around her, the... Um, 
her father, her husband, or her eldest son in many cases, right? Uh, she is the fair goddess of her city quarter. Her fate has been decided since the days of her youth. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, <laughs> we have notions of sort of adventure and dreams and fulfilling our dreams or whatever, uh, which are very might have a lot to do with 20th century American consumer society and the expectations put into us by commercials on the TV or something. But uh, yeah, her fate decided since the days of her youth. Very, yeah, that's good. Okay, stability, that's good. Single-handed, she keeps in order the house of her father-in-law. Okay, so that's patrilocal marriage. She has gone to the house of her husband, right? And that is still seen as the property of her father-in-law. That's her husband's father. So the property is being passed down in the male line. The woman is brought into the family. She becomes a domestic servant exclusively, right? She serves humbly before her divine mistress. So her mistress would be her mother-in-law, I assume. She knows how to look after Inanna's place. And that's a goddess, right? So they're you know, a goddess of the household. She never disobeys the orders of the king. She's obedient to the government, okay? She is energetic and causes possessions to multiply. All right. Yeah, well, you know, that's good. She is loving, gentle, and lively. Excellent. By nature, she is a lamb, sweet butter, honey, flowing ghee. Let me give you another description of my mother. My mother is like the bright light in the sky, a doe on the hillsides. She is the morning star, shining even at noontime. She is precious cornelian, a topaz from Marhashi, a place name apparently. She is the jewelry of a king's brother, full of beauty. She is a cylinder seal of near stone, an ornament like the sun. A cylinder steel, seal would be uh, one of those things you roll on clay. Remember, these people write on clay, right? with cuneiform writing, making impressions in it with a reed, sort of. And they have these seals that can be rolled onto clay, and they leave a pattern, which is not easily imitated, right? So they can prove where a given text came from. That's proof of authorship. It becomes important. That's interesting to think about, too. She is a cylinder of Neil, a cylinder seal of near stone, an ornament like the sun. She is a bracelet of tin a ring of antasura stone. She is a nugget of shining gold and silver, but which is living and draws breath. We have a gap there. She is an alabaster statuette of a protective goddess standing on a pedestal of lapis lazuli. She is a polished rod of ivory with limbs full of beauty. Let me give you a third description of my mother. My mother is rain from heaven, water for the finest seeds. She is a bountiful harvest of fully grown fine barley. She is a garden of something, something, full of laughter. She is a well-irrigated pine tree, an adorned juniper. She is early fruit, the products of the first month. She is an irrigation ditch, bringing fertilizing water to the garden plots. She is a sweet deal moon date, a prime date, much sought after. Let me give you a fourth description of my mother. My mother fills the festivals and offerings with joy. She is an akitum offering. Awesome to look upon. She is something something. Child of the king. A song of abundance. She is a place of entertainment. 
set up for delights. She is a lover, a loving heart, who never becomes sated with pleasure. Now, isn't that interesting? Um, so pursuing pleasure is considered to be a good thing for a woman to do, which, uh, you know, time periods when we get more sort of deep ownership over the woman's body, I think that pursuing pleasure, whether of sexual kind or whatever, and also like ideology of scarcity, ideology of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. Everyone has to work hard and beat out everyone else to get enough to eat, to get enough money, whatever it is, right? And so enjoying pleasure would go against the whole, right, Protestant work ethic or whatever we have different forms that this takes in history. But uh, I think later, as class struggle proceeds, that kind of, like, you wouldn't see that, right? You wouldn't see a woman praised for never becoming sated with pleasure. She is the good news that the captive will return to his mother. That's beautiful, isn't it? She is the good news that a captive will return to his mother. Let me give you a fifth description of my mother. My mother is a palm tree with the sweetest fragrance. She is a chariot of juniper wood, a wagon of boxwood. She is a fine cloth perfumed with refined oil. She is a bunch of grapes, a garland growing luxuriantly. She is a vial made from an ostrich egg overflowing with finest oil. So we've had all these descriptions. Um, when, thanks to the descriptions I have given you, you stand in her radiant presence, tell her, your beloved son, Ludigira, is in good health. And that's the end of the composition. So the entire, the structure of joke here is that the entire thing is mostly just like the address portion. That would be like the address that you write on an envelope is telling you, how do you find this person? And in other texts where someone sends a messenger, you get things like, you know, on the corner between this guy's house and this other guy's house, right? You go over there and you look in the garden and there's a lady that usually is working in this garden over there. You talk to her and you go, like, this is the address. This is how you'd like tell someone to go to a certain place uh, at this time, right? Uh, but the joke here is that the whole address is like all of this, this rhetorical praise of the mother. And it's sweet, you know, but at the same time, I, I don't know if such a thing would be possible in the era of matriarchy, of mother right. I'd really like to read something from such a society. But this here, there's all this praise, but it they're objects, right? She's being compared to objects, beautiful uh, luxury goods and uh, objects that one would really like to own, precious metals and precious stones and things, right? And there's maybe an, an unusually high proportion of sort of like praising her for enjoying pleasure or something, right? Like there's, that's still not super patriarchal perhaps, but... Uh, still very much, you know, she's being ob objectified, we can say, still. And shout out to H.D. Case, who brought my attention to the instructions of Shuripag, which is another Sumerian uh, sort of wisdom literature collection. And reading through that, I found some relevant things. This is really interesting, uh, right? 
there's a moment where you sort of see uh, there's there's advice that kind of the best kind of slave is one abducted directly from hunter gatherer humanity, like pure real humanity, <laughs> we would say, uh, because they lack the kind of narrow and partisan and privatized kinship structures of class society. If you take a slave from another class society, they're going to be partisan and be attached to their particular uh, family or town or whatever else, right? But taking them directly from hunter-gatherer society, uh, they're used to this more kind of universalist, um, larger kinship structure, right? Which Engels would call the gens, using the, the Latin word for like a clan, right? Uh, but here, Shuripag says, You should not buy a free man. He will always lean against the wall. You should not buy a houseborn slave. He is an herb that makes the stomach sick. You should not buy a palace slave girl. She will always be the bottom of the barrel. You should rather bring down a foreign slave from the mountains, or you should bring somebody from a place where he is an alien. My son, then he will pour water for you where the sun rises, and he will walk before you. He does not belong to any family, so he does not want to go to his family. He does not belong to any city, so he does not want to go to his city. Right? He will not be presumptuous with you. I think that hunter-gatherers would have had families, and they would have had... I mean, they have their larger gens, right? their larger kinship structure, where they have many, many fathers and many mothers, um, and one mother in particular. Right? whom I think they will have missed. I think they would have definitely missed their being captured and being made a slave is not something that they would have enjoyed. Uh, but nevertheless, you can see there, little culture clash between people in civilization and people in um, natural humanity, we can say. So with that, um, a couple principles, a little, little more theory, maybe from Engels, we'll say. Um, so at his, in his time, it was just being rediscovered that actually, like, the bourgeois family and the, the family as it evolved to pass on private property uh, is not all that there was. Actually, ancient times, there was uh, larger, more expansive kinship structures, richer kinship structures, right? Uh, so that when we say, uh, if we say, abolish the family, I'm not sure if... That's a slogan that is going to be skillful to use, to, to use uh, Buddhist terminology, right? Um, skillful means, like, it's, does something put you on the right path, you know? Um, much more than, it's a different question to ask rather than, is it true? Or is it right? Is it correct? Or whatever. Um, naturally, if we know that something is true, if we know that something is right, then we want to believe it and use it and whatever but if we but there's so many cases where we don't know that we don't know what's true we don't know what's right and in that case um you can look at what is skillful right and uh i think with the slogan abolish the family uh we could debate about is it skillful to say that but what people you know the the, the cool people uh what they mean when they say that is develop new and richer kinship structures than the stale, pale, sick, sickly bourgeois family that has evolved to pass on capital ownership, right? Uh, which is something that I, I think we, I can get behind anyway. Uh, so 
angles. Uh, that among some peoples of ancient history, as well as among some so-called, I'll add the so-called, savages still alive today, descent was reckoned not from the father, but from the mother, and that the female line was therefore regarded as alone valid, that among many groups of the present day, marriage is forbidden within certain large groups, which at that time had not been closely studied, and that this custom is to be met with in every continent. These facts were indeed known, and fresh instances of them were continually being collected. So you have people that don't have, again, this structure that is specialized to pass down private property. The systems of kinship and the forms of the family uh, that we have just mentioned differ from those prevailing today in the fact that every child has several fathers and mothers in the American, that is indigenous American, system of kinship to which the Hawaiian family corresponds, brother and sister cannot be the father and mother of the same child. But the Hawaiian system of kinship, on the contrary, presupposes a family in which this was the rule. Uh, because all cousins, all members of the same larger gens, the same clan, are brothers and sister. There's no sort of other word, right? Um, or there can be very, very fine distinctions that we would have no words for in English today, right? Um, that, that is often the case, I know. Here we find ourselves among a series of forms of the family which directly contradict those hitherto generally assumed to be alone valid. The traditional view knows only monogamy, with, in addition, polygamy on the part of individual men, and at the very most, polyandry on the part of individual women, as is the way with moralizing Philistines, it conceals the fact that in practice these barriers raised by official society are quietly but unblushingly ignored. The study of primitive history, however, reveals conditions where the men live in polygamy and their wives in polyandry at the same time, and their common children are therefore considered common to them all. And these conditions in their turn undergo a long series of changes before they finally end in monogamy. The trend of these changes is to narrow more and more the circle of people comprised within the common bond of marriage, which was originally very wide, until at last it includes only the single pair, the dominant form of marriage today. Again, in all forms of group family, it is uncertain who is the father of a child, but it is certain who its mother is. Though she calls all the children of the communal family her children and has a mother's duties towards them, she nevertheless knows her natural children from the others. It is therefore clear that insofar as group marriage prevails, descent can only be proved on the mother's side, and therefore only the female line is recognized. Right? This is the Gens. And also another topic that's in common with Dawn of Everything is the fact that Europeans actually learned about democracy from the Iroquois Confederacy and other indigenous groups, not just from observing them, but because certain indigenous thinkers actually went to Europe and they did speech tours and they argued, you know, your European society, this class society that you have is just horrible. We would never want this. We used to have a society like this, but we overthrew it and we accomplished uh, the construction of a more decentralized, more equal uh, society where people all have these core duties to each other, right? This, this duty of kinship, this duty of family is something that 
you would feel and have toward everyone whom you would uh, realistically meet. You know, maybe not somebody way on the other side of uh, the continent, but everyone around you is your relative. And uh, indigenous Americans still speak this way. You can listen to the um, the Red Nation. The Red Nation podcast is, is a great one to listen to. And they still speak this way about... Uh, different domestic animals that they use they call them relatives the turkey is a relative of ours the, the deer is a relative we have treaties with the bear nation we have treaties with the buffalo nation right there's this great kind of expansive uh, sense of connectedness which i really like and uh this is where democracy actually uh, is born in human history, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's something that you see in many places, and it's something that uh, universally everyone uh, understands and wants, I think. Um, but as far as where did Europeans get the idea, uh, I think there's a great uh, case to be made that the Iroquois Confederacy is a big one, and that's exactly uh, where Engels goes here. Um, the Gens has a council the Democratic Assembly of All Male and Female Adult Gentiles, meaning like members of the Gens, uh, all with equal votes. This council elected sachems, war chiefs, and also the other keepers of the faith, and deposed them. It took decisions regarding blood revenge or payment of atonement for murdered Gentiles, murdered members of the Gens. It adopted strangers into the Gens. In short, it was the sovereign power in the Gens. Such were the rights and privileges of a typical Indian Gens. Again, Engels uses all kinds of terminology that's common for the time, but you can tell that the content of what he's talking about is definitely not looking down on these people at all. Rather, he would be elevating them up and saying, look, actually this is a model uh, to be learned from in our modern times and, and going forward for a future society. All the members of an Iroquois Gens were personally free and they were bound to defend each other's freedom. They were equal in privileges and in personal rights, the sachem and chiefs claiming no superiority, and they were a brotherhood bound together by the ties of kin. Liberty, equality, and fraternity, though never formulated, were cardinal principles of the Gens. These facts are material because the Gens was the unit of a social and governmental system, the foundation upon which Indian society was organized. It serves to explain that sense of independence and personal dignity, universally an attribute of an Indian character. The Indians of the whole of North America at the time of its discovery were organized in Gentes under mother right. Gentes is the plural of Gens in Latin. The Gentes had disappeared only in some tribes, as among the Dakotas. In others, as among the Ojibwas and the Omahas, they were organized according to father right. So they begin to uh, adopt, actually, father right after a while. Ichi nichi ni hai no sake o no mi Sakana wa toku ni kodawarazu Mahiku ga kita nara hohoende O hako hitotsu utau dake Tsuma ni wa namira o misenai de 
子供に口を聞かせずに男の嘆きはほろ酔いで酒場の隅に置いてゆく目立たぬようにはしゃがぬようににあわぬことは無理をせず人の心を見つめ続ける時代遅れの男になりたい Right, Father Wright. And, and so Engels even goes then into our classical Greece and Rome. These are the societies that, after really learning about democracy and liberty, fraternity, equality from Native Americans, Europeans then project back and also learning about capital, learning about capital networks from Islam, learning about、uh, trade and the Silk Road from. Persia, India, China, after really absorbing that technology, that financial technology there, and building these financial networks around, early modern Europeans take and, and project that as well back onto Greece and Rome. And those are the fetishes、uh, which they say, they turn around and say, we are come from that, right? We saw earlier how Hippocrates, the father of medicine in Greece, He's looking, he looks to Asia, he talks a long time about Persia, he looks to Africa, he talks about Egyptians mainly, and then, and lots of different people too.、Uh, there's lots of interesting stuff.、Uh, but then he turns to Europe, and oh, it's these flabby, white, kind of poorly developed people. They're, you know, they're not up to anything interesting, right?、Uh, <laughs> the, the relationship could not be more uneven, right? It's, a, it's an unrequited crush. That、uh, Europe has on ancient Greece. And so it's all the more powerful that Engels takes up Greece and Rome and shows how they too, in their early history, can be shown to have been moving along these same lines, moving, developing away from group marriage, broad family, we might say a kind of universal kinship to some degree, right? Uh, I think the reality will be that they actually have all kinds of different names for all kinds of very fine distinctions of how related is someone to me, I think.、Um, I, I know that we'll see, you'll see that if you really get into those sources, right?、Um, and actually look at those people themselves, right? Engels is kind of at a bit of a remove here. But、um, you'll see that in general, Greece and Rome also came from that. And they were developing away from it because they were evolving to hold on to private property and to pass it on within a narrower and narrower group, right? So you can see why there is a lot to be said for something like abolishing the family because we want to dial back. We want to go, you know, not necessarily go back, we want to go forward, but we want to break out of this narrow, narrow family that has evolved to pass down private property. Right? If we're not going to have, we don't need private property. We don't need different relations of production because of the modern productive forces that we now have. 
Well, then you don't need to have uh, these narrow kinship groups. And having those narrow, narrow kinship groups results in these societies where everyone looks around. There's children everywhere starving to death. And people say, oh, it's not my child. You know, it's not what do you want to do? Right? No. Uh, in an indigenous society, every, every child is your child. You don't see a child. And, and every elder is your elder. Every grandparent is your parent. Every relative is your relative. Right? And we, all the more, in the kingless generation, we can have universal kinship and not necessarily binary because a universal binary, universal yes is meaningless. It might as well be a universal no. You know, everyone is your relative. That means everyone is not your relative. Um, there could be a kind of gradient, you know. There's a gradient where, and it never would go to a point where someone is not your relative and you have no responsibility for them. But right you you can you can have much more complex things you can have much more complex things and you, and we should we should that would be the way that would be the kind of i really do think that these narrow narrow kinship structures would be incompatible with a truly equal democratic uh society with respect to production and everything else right uh, but so Engels, this is why why this is great. He shows that the Greeks and Romans are on this continuum as well. Father Wright, with transmission of the property to the children by which accumulation of wealth within the family was favored and the family itself became a power against the gens. Reaction of the inequality of wealth on the constitution by the formation of the first rudiments of a hereditary nobility and monarchy. Slavery, at first only of prisoners of war, but already preparing the way for the enslavement of fellow members of the tribe and even of the Gens. The old wars between tribe and tribe already degenerating into systematic pillage by land and sea for the acquisition of cattle, slaves, and treasure, and becoming a regular source of income. In short, riches praised and respected as the highest good, and the old Gentile order, the Gens, misused to justify the violent seizure of riches, only one thing was wanting, an institution which not only secured the newly acquired riches of individuals against the communistic traditions of the Gentile order, which not only sanctified the private property formerly so little valued and declared this sanctification to be the highest purpose of all human society, but an institution which also set the seal of general social recognition on each subsequently developing new method of acquiring property and thus amassing wealth at continually increasing speed, an institution which perpetuated not only this growing cleavage of society into classes, but also the right of the possessing class to exploit the non-possessing and the rule of the former over the latter. And this institution came the state was invented. This is the birth of the state. It's there. So you have the family grows out of the Gens, gobbles up the Gens, destroys the Gens, and you have the birth of the state as, as the thing that pro protects the rights of private property and, and all of these things. And the family is the structure within which that private property is held and passed on. So can we keep that as it is? Surely we cannot keep that as it is. Um, should we get rid of it right away? No. In the, for the same reason that, you know, I was just reading a document 
uh, by the foremost Maoist theorist in America right now, Kevin Rashid Johnson. Um, his website is rashidmod.com, I think. And I was just reading a, a doc, you know thing on abolish prisons, right? Prison abolition. Uh, and, you know, of course, prison abolition is something that would come eventually with world communism, a stateless, classless society in the entire world. You don't need a prison. You don't need any of the things. You don't need a state, right? The state, uh, the machinery of the state involves first and foremost bands of armed men who would carry out violence on you and imprison you in prisons, right? So you don't, you don't need those anymore in that case. However, before you get there, if you just, you know, the, the vanguard, the, um, the, the class that is uh, a revolutionary class and is transforming society, working to transform society, uh, cannot give up its means of enacting its will, right? If you do that too early, well, you know, their history is filled with uh, examples of what happens if you don't defend the gains that you have made, right? So, no, you know, Kevin Rashid Johnson would be saying uh, the prison, prisons cannot be abolished until world communism is achieved and things really kind of settle down, right? And I would think the same thing, like, abolishing the family, this is something not to do, you know, like right now because uh, that would just contribute to atomization uh, potentially, Right. I think we do actually want pretty uh, we want to balance. This is a tricky thing and we need to do this. Uh, probably that itself should be decided in a fairly decentralized way for certain people. Maybe they can be a little more. Um, what do you call it? Uh, pre figure old prefigural. Uh, right. Be if a certain strategy or a certain form of revolutionary activity prefigures in the way that like, you know, uh, Christians read the Hebrew Bible to say that it prefigures Jesus, uh, right? We can sort of say that certain structures would prefigure the final end state of a stateless, classless society uh, that we would want, right? Uh, but, you know, if you totally just try to do that right away, it's you're going to have something that falls apart immediately, you know, and that's why I would not be uh, an anarchist, you know, this anarchism tends to to end up in this kind of place, right? There's no kind of strategy to actually get there. And in order to actually get there, you need to have like a vessel of some things that, that don't, you know, that aren't your final end state, right? You got to have structures of um, democratic centralism, for example. The centralism part is like once something is decided, then we all abide by it, right? If you don't want to abide by it, you can you know, go somewhere else, but um, if you're going to stay with it and do the thing, you got to uh, abide by it, right? And we would need that. Uh, theoretically, when you get to a stateless, classless society, the end of everything, uh, then you wouldn't have to force anyone to do anything, hopefully, right? I mean, <laughs> there still would be, I mean, I, I do think there still would be people who are unhappy for this or that reason you know there still will be tensions there still will be contradictions uh even under full communism just as there was you know this is the thing in that i've i've been saying uh full communism has been achieved in among indigenous americans actually 
right? This is the, what the Iroquois thinkers were saying. We already overthrew a class society and we made it like this. So it's been done. It's been done. And it's been done many times before in many places. Right? So this is actually something we should really keep in mind. Yeah. And, you know, as we go, we keep going, uh, Greece and Rome, Greek and Roman uh, people, right? Uh, patriarchy is increasing, the power of the father. And where does that finally go? It f- goes to the power uh, not only to pass on property to children, but children themselves become property. Children themselves become property. And the, sale, the selling of children into slavery is where this goes as well. If the sale of the land did not cover the debt, or if the debt had been contracted without any security, the debtor, in order to meet his creditor's claims, had to sell his children into slavery abroad. Children sold by their father. Such was the first fruit of father right and monogamy. And if the blood sucker was still not satisfied, he could sell the debtor himself as a slave. Thus, the pleasant dawn of civilization began, for the Athenian people. Wonderful words from Engels there. And with that, let's go to early 18th century Japan. This is under the Tokugawa shogunate. They have a combined rice economy and a money economy. So the nominal ruling class of the society is the samurai class, which is a warrior class. And they draw rice stipends from the peasants, but they are not able to extract any more value really than that. And you have then classes of officially craftsmen and merchants. I think in practice that was mixed quite a bit. Um, Basically, you have urban commoners who are able to use capital in various ways. You also have some big peasants, actually, uh, out in the countryside who are using capital in various ways. The picture is more complicated, but... This is the situation, and, and the, those who use the money economy keep getting ahead of the samurai. And right before the end of one of these cycles of boom and bust, maybe, we can see in a certain way throughout the Edo period, uh, right before the, the Kyoho reforms, they keep doing these reforms to kind of beat down the rising capitalist classes and keep the samurai on top. And the first one of these uh, comes after the reign of a particularly libertine shogun Tsunayoshi and it was under him around the year 1700 that there was this vendetta one lord insulted another or something and they drew a sword tried to attack and then he was forced to commit uh, suicide uh, which is considered an honorable form of capital capital punishment but he uh, he's out of the picture but then his retainers or a masterless samurai now, that's called Ronin. And masterless samurai, a plot by then, had almost brought down the Tokugawa shogunate. Uh, after it's, it's founded at the beginning of the 17th century, and it almost comes down with the Yui Shosets affair in about 1650, right, under a boy shogun. And so that's, after that, a lot of things are adjusted as well to sort of make it harder for daimyo to be attainered that is to lose their to die without an heir and then lose their fief and then 
all of their retainers become masterless samurai. So you have these specialists in violence who now have no financial support, and that's a recipe for rebellion. And it almost brought down the shogunate in 1650, right? And then in 1700, you have this other vendetta, and there's a really interesting kind of dance of cultural policy with respect to that, because at first they kind of uh, allow some popular plays and things to be written about it, then they're banned, and it goes back and forth between, like, does the shogunate want to encourage stories about vendettas or not? And also, similarly, love suicides, people who are caught in debt, people who are caught uh, on the underside of this machine of capital that, that is beginning to start up in Japan in its particular way. You get all kinds of people who are, are caught in the wheels of that, and they are driven to uh, commit suicide together. That's, that's known as shinju. Um, maybe lovers, right? It could be a family, right? Even today, you know, you have sad cases during coronavirus of uh, single mothers committing shinju uh, with their children because they uh, ran out of money and they were about to be put into a really bad, desperate situation, right? And so, uh, yeah, they, they ended it. And, uh, you know, this is... Uh, two genres that the the government sort of it sometimes allows or in, even maybe encourages to sort of let people let off steam maybe right uh the famous um sonezaki shinju the love suicides at sonezaki is the most famous um puppet play or kabuki their versions for each medium uh, right, and that's also the case with uh, what I'm about to discuss, Chushingura. It's really the the storehouse of loyal retainers. Really, the most uh, famous story of uh, samurai honor, and it has all of its kind of modern movie versions and stuff. And people are always shocked when I show them this because, how did you choose this part? What kind of weird part did you choose to? No, this is the most important part. This is the most popular. This is what was most commonly uh, produced and also is considered only for master actors to approach. This scene, um, the suicide of, of Kampe. Um, and Kampe is a guy... Well, so no, wait. Before we get into that, uh, the, the history of the play. So about 17, is it 48... Uh, yeah, by um, Takeda Izumo II, Namiki Sosuke, and Miyoshi Shouraku uh, have written this version together, and that becomes the standard version, whether it's in puppets or whether it's kabuki throughout the Edo period. There are some changes in the script, um, right? I'm going to actually be reading from uh, a 19th century version of it, which, which humanizes things a little bit more, we might say. I don't, you know, you can debate about what that means. Um, it's a little bit less austere. But so let's think a moment about what is a vendetta. A vendetta is somebody is carrying out a death sentence on someone else, you know, and the, that would be interesting with respect to like Max Weber's uh, definition of Weber's definition of what is a modern uh, state, a modern state uh, does has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. That's his definition. And so, in that sense, yeah, this Tokugawa government does not have a monopoly 
on the legitimate use of violence because actually when the vendetta is carried out around 1700 they sort of allow then those ronin to commit suicide themselves and give them basically an honorable death and so kind of recognize like okay you got to die now but um what you did was like all right right and you can see in legal court cases and things you can read about how various capital crimes are allowed to be carried out, sentences carried out by families. So families would kill you, right? Uh, and isn't that interesting with respect to the history of the family, right? The family would be an organ where uh, now the state is using the family as the sword of uh, retribution against a criminal, right? And they would be sort of fulfilling the function of like the police in that case. So, but here, and it, with seppuku, right, um, killing yourself ritually, um, you're, like, being given the privilege of you get to be the sword of the state yourself in carrying out the sentence on yourself, right? And that's thought, that's considered to be um, more honorable. And that would be, that'd be something that most people are probably familiar with if they hear, maybe you even know the title of this peace and you know associate it with that sort of thing and you might you'll know that but nevertheless nevertheless we will see that there's some very jarring stuff that uh if you had if you just watch the movie modern movies of of chushingura you're not going to understand where this is coming from um but this is actual like this is real uh patriarchal ethics and feudal ethics right and we're going to get that today you're going to feel it in your bones here we go. So Kampei is one of the masterless samurai. He was a, a lower ranking samurai. And unfortunately, he was sort of, part of partially the cause of his master's disgrace because he was meeting for a tryst, a daytime tryst with his lover, who is now his wife. She was a farmer girl, uh, so not a samurai. And at the time, you know, they were meeting during the day when he should have been at his lord's side. And if he had been there, he could have stopped his lord from attacking the other lord and causing the whole problem. So he's been excluded from the vendetta plot. And he's gone back to the home of his wife in the countryside because she's a farmer, right? And he's working as a hunter, now, so and you know that a hunter would be an outcast in uh, Buddhist kind of Japanese Buddhism, right? Because we, we learned talking about the Nihon Ryoiki that the Japanese tributary state discourages its subjects from doing anything other than raising rice, and so getting nutrients from animal sources would be you know, you're spending time that is not being spent on growing your rice. So that's not encouraged, right? And it's given this religious justification of the, in the form of the Buddhist uh, injunction against taking life. So, but Kampei is now, as a further sign of his abjection and outsider status, he has become a hunter. He has a gun and he's hunting in the mountains. That's what he does. Uh, and as our play opens, his parents are getting ready to sell their daughter uh, into the sex trade at a brothel in Kyoto. 
And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they've learned that Kampe, their son-in-law, can buy his way back into the vendetta plot, despite him being, it kind of being his fault, right? He's been disgraced. He's lost his samurai honor. But he can buy his way back in if he gets like a certain amount of money. And he needs this money. He's been saying that. And so they are now, without his knowledge, they're going to do it and then tell him later. Uh, they're going to sell the, the daughter. And it's time. The, the harvest songs are ringing out in the countryside. And, uh, you know, we have this kind of picture of dom domesticity, perhaps. And uh, this, there's a song they're singing. The Misaki dance in full swing. Your cue, old man, take grandma's hand. You have this kind of image of a charming elderly couple growing old together. Yeah, well, at the same time, here we have, though, the wife, Okaru, is being sold into the sex trade, right? Uh, nevertheless, we have this kind of like, um, Okaru says, uh, what could be keeping him? They're waiting for the um, father uh, who was out signing the contract and getting the money for the, getting the first, like a down payment, sort of, on uh, Okaru, right? And he's coming back supposedly with the money, and they're waiting for him. Shall I run out and have a look, Okaru says. Her mother then, Okaya, says, no, no, a young woman can't just wander about the village. So then again, we have the female body as property of the family, uh, important means of production, right? Means of, uh, it's, it can be a commodity. It can be uh, aestheticized. It can be fetishized, right? It definitely is, um, Right, and it's about to be used as a, a source of pleasure in the pleasure quarters, right? Uh, and yet, and yet, we want to protect. Well, of course, that's why you protect it, right? You protect. You know, a young woman can't just wander about the village, right? And uh, but you don't seem to mind, uh, her mother says, returning here with Kampe, um, because they've got they left the capital, they left the city to come out. Um, and she says, what are you talking about, mother? That's only natural. As long as I'm with the man I love, how can I complain? No matter how rustic the place or how hard the life. So total devotion to the man. Definitely. And also, though, um, the, their, their conversation continues. The mother says, you sound so lively even when you know you have to leave soon. No, I'm resigned to the plan, she says. As long as it's for Lord Enya, I'm ready and willing to go into service at Guillaume in Kyoto, right? Um, so not only to the man, but to his lord. So the feudal bond right there is something that the woman also invests herself in. And uh, she is willing to do anything uh, for the sake of that honor. Right. And we have a kind of equation setting up here. We have a kind of dynamic of value. There's an exchange that we can begin to see coming into shape. Basically, originally when Kampe and Okaru are married, you get samurai status and honor, class position, being transferred to Okaru's family, principally her father. It's her father who's going and signing the contract and handing her over. And we see here a very typical situation. 
Modern conservative discourse tells you that the traditional family is about when a man and a woman love each other very much, they come together, and you have a family. Nuclear, the only family is a nuclear family, particularly in the Anglo-American context, because uh, that's where the disintegration of the extended family proceeded the furthest, the fastest, isn't it? And it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And it's all of this, right? Um, one man, one woman, and uh, that's God's plan. Well, uh, actually, what we see when we read real pre-modern literature, uh, we see that marriage is, happens when one man and another man love each other very much. And they want to share some land or a business, and they want to make a marriage alliance and pass down their property and all of this, right? Uh, and that's what happened here. The samurai son-in-law and the farmer father-in-law have make this exchange. He gets a woman, right? And the women are property of the men. The men are the stable nodes. The woman is like uh, an electron in an electron bond in a, you know, think about molecules forming, or something, they share an electron. Uh, it's very similar to that, you could think of it, right? The woman goes to the, the son-in-law and the father-in-law gets the samurai honor. Well, now the samurai honor is sullied. The samurai honor is lost. So we need to get that back. The father gets that back by now trading the woman's body again for money. And the money can now be used to buy the son-in-law back into the vendetta plot and thereby get back his samurai honor right so this is, an, this is the equation that we see shaping up here soon so they arrive from the brothel and they say oh a fine specimen one of the finest jewels i've ever seen so here too we have a woman being compared to a jewel just like the poem on my mother right from ancient sumer uh slightly less endearing uh but ultimately really based on the same logic of the female as a uh an object rather than a subject and we have here uh father right rather than mother right going there right your daughter's contract is for exactly five years in exchange for a fee of 100 gold ryo. These are kind of coin. So they're troubled, though, because the father has not yet returned, even though he supposedly left the brothel the night before and was going to just arrive late at night, right? And uh, so they don't want to let her go right away because they want to resolve this. But they, they say, no, no, no matter what excuses you offer, Yoichibe's own seal on this contract, that's the father, states our case. Today we've bought this woman's body. We can't afford to lose even a day of her services. Yeah. Well, 
then his, the husband comes in and uh, they say, well, you must be our new employee's husband, whether you're her lord or master. Uh, not even Amida or the Buddha can interfere. The contract is legal and binding with her father's name, signed and sealed. So they're a little worried that he might try to stop them. Uh, but he doesn't. No, he's very much, uh, when he finds out, they didn't tell him, right? But then when he finds out, he's, he's like, yep, okay, great. Yep, we're going to get the money and we're going to get the honor back. And that's what we need to do, right? No shame in selling his wife as long as it raises money to serve his Lord, right? He surely won't be angry with us, father thought. So yesterday he set off for Gion to settle the deal. And she exp that's the mother explaining, right? And he says, well, okay, but there's no need to now to sell Okaru. I've had a bit of luck myself. And he kind of doesn't tell them quite the whole story right away. But what actually happens is that he shot... Uh, what he thought was an, a wild boar on the mountain, but it, when he got closer, he found that it was a man, and the man had, he looked into the man's pockets for medicine, he said, uh, maybe to heal the man, uh, but there was money, there was a bunch of money, and he, it wasn't quite right, but he thought he would accept the money as a gift from the gods, it must be a gift from heaven, and he could use that money to buy his way back into the vendetta plot. But now he thinks, oh, well, we don't need that money for that. Uh, but then it's a, in a typically convoluted kind of kabuki plot, sort of soap opera energy here. He realizes that the man that he killed was actually his father-in-law, uh, right? His father-in-law was the man there, and the, the cloth matches on the bag. It was a bag that the brothel owner gave him, and he's actually got that money. But before he fully realized, you know, and it's set up very carefully so that he realizes this and that thing at certain moments, and it's very complicated and kind of interesting to watch it play out. Uh, meanwhile, the wife, Okaru, says, No, no, Okampe, you must want to say farewell to your wife. Are you afraid that Okaru will regret her decision? Okaru says, No, no, no matter how long we're separated, as long as I'm selling myself in the service of my lord, I have no regrets at all. I'll leave bravely, but to leave without seeing father, I'm a little, you know, they still don't know what's happened to, to father yet. Uh, the, the mother says, here, take this tissue and fan. You'll need them. Uh, the tissue is to wipe, um, used to wipe up after uh, services, right? So this is very kind of... Um, raw there and she finally breaks down crying the mother right she gives her all kinds of advice about you know don't don't get into um don't don't get anybody to to do a love suicide with you basically um not quite love suicide but cutting off your finger that would be another thing women are often forced to prove their love by cutting a finger if you get in that situation don't cut your finger or even a strand of hair don't drink too much sake either even when pressed to drink don't swallow too much and she's kind of, you know, fretting and finally breaks down crying. You know, this is a dramatic moment. But then finally some hunters bring the body of the father by. So then it, everyone realized, oh, he's dead. And so finally we get to the point of uh, realizing it comes out. 
he has to confess. The main character has to Kampe has to confess that he it was him that actually killed his father-in-law. And the mother-in-law actually thinks that he plotted to do this and gets very angry at him. Uh, the, meanwhile, the wife has gone. The wife has left to the brothel. And uh, then his samurai friends, who are planning the vendetta still, come by uh, just then. And Kampei takes this moment to commit suicide in front of them and at least somehow you know, r- restore some amount of honor. We've discussed before how this is fundamentally a Confucian thing, uh, and the reason why killing yourself is a solution to an ethical dilemma is because it restores your sincerity. If Confucian ethics, which dominate in East Asia, were about just doing the right thing, then committing suicide wouldn't accomplish anything. And that's why it looks silly from... uh, so-called Western perspective or whatever you might have, right? Uh, what that actually is, is if you have an ethics that's based on doing the right thing uh, and even maybe like having the right intention, you know, you wanted to do this and a, a good thing and that, that's what matters. Well, that's not what Confucius says, right? There's a famous proof text. Confucius finds someone who is going against the rules for how long you should mourn your father when he dies and the person is eating and drinking when uh, it hasn't been that long after his father died. And Confucius's reaction is telling. He says, since you are such an insincere person toward your relationship to your father, then I think you should just drink and eat. Don't go ahead. Do that thing. Do the thing. You know, you're doing the thing that is bad. But the important thing is your sincerity. You lack the sincerity toward that basic relationship with your father. And since you lack that, telling you to do the right thing is not something I'm interested in doing. I don't care, right? Uh, And so then conversely, the way that you maintain your honor can, when you've made a mistake, when you've you've messed something up, uh, you can still die with, uh, and people will recognize that person was sincere, right, by committing suicide. That's why it is done. That's why it, it's considered good, because um, the criterion is sincerity, right? It's not intentionality. It isn't behavior. You know, what did you actually do? Um, it's were you sincere toward a relationship? So... Uh, and so as a result, of course, you know, Kampe begins to commit suicide. He, he takes out his sword and stabs himself. And right then, however, his samurai comrades go and examine the body of the father-in-law. And they notice that the wounds actually were not made by a gun. They were made by a sword. And they say, oh, actually, on our way here, we saw the body of the notorious thief so-and-so. He had died, and he had been shot with a gun. So actually, what happened was, Kampe, you shot uh, the thief. That thief had robbed uh, your father-in-law, and that's how you got the money. <laughs> and uh, your father-in-law was killed by the thief. So you didn't kill your father-in-law. However, he's already started committing suicide at this point. And uh, so then here we have the real important moment for our podcast at this moment, which is about patriarchy, right? So we've seen that, that interesting equation there. 
the samurai honor being traded for the body of the woman, the body of the woman traded for money, the money traded again for the samurai honor. We get it back. And here we have a really interesting moment. The mother-in-law is telling him, be strong, Kampe, you mustn't die. Don't die. And he, well, no, but he has to die in order to make that equation work out and have the honor be there, right? And uh, she, she says, oh, okay, well, listen, Kampe, I want to tell Okaru, your wife, right, my daughter, don't die now. Let me bring Okaru to see you. What is his reaction to that? No, no, you mustn't tell her about father's death or mine. She was sold to help the vendetta. If she hears about all this, she won't do her job as well. She won't do her job as well and be disloyal to our master. <laughs> so this is, okay, um, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, she w if she knows that I'm dead, if she knows that she can't see me, when she gets out of the brothel. She's sold for five years. I want her to work hard. I want her to be sucking. I want her to be fucking. I want her to do all the sex with all the customers as hard as she can and as good as she can, uh, looking forward to seeing me after the five years are over, right? Because the value of the money and the honor that I have won back with it comes from that. That's the values being added there. That's the mechanism where it's coming from for Kampe, right? There, I recently saw on YouTube, there was a speech by a uh, member of the, the Ishin no Kai, which is a far right party that is gaining ground in elections recently in Japan. Uh, and there's this guy with a, a belly that's gotten too big so he can't close his, uh, his button on his blazer, uh, but he's uh, sort of pantomiming being a samurai. And he's got a slide in up saying, uh, PowerPoint slide saying, you know, onna wa sampo sagatte aruke or something. Uh, women should walk uh, three paces behind their husbands in public. Uh, and his explanation for why this is, is all about samurais and their wives. And he's like, you know, the, the samurais, when they're out for a walk with their wives... Uh, and, you know, the, the etahinin, he uses the term for the buraku people who are uh, discriminated against, you know, people who belong to, um, you know, tanners, uh, leather workers, people who are involved in disposing of corpses, undertakers would belong to this class and they would live down low by the rivers and things. And there was, there's this caste kind of of outcast uh, people and you know it's like kind of illegal to out someone you know you could easily be sued responsible in court for outing someone as belonging to this uh, there's you know laws are such today that it's like that does not exist we don't talk about who used to belong to that so you know this guy is like um, he's got this fantasy going where yeah the the samurai like needs to protect his wife from those outcast classes uh, you don't never know when they're going to come and he's going to have to draw his sword and he's going to protect his lo beloved wife, my lovely um, and you know, he's, I'm going to draw my sword and protect. And that's why a woman has to walk uh, three paces behind her husband at all times. Uh, 
you know, he's making this point, uh, restoring the, the traditional family relations. Uh, well, you know, if you know anything about uh, gender relations in actual pre-modern Japan, a samurai that was that obsessed with his wife is the gayest thing ever uh, to, to a samurai. Come on. That's ridiculous. Um, he shouldn't be. That's gay. I mean, literally, <laughs> not quite, but that's not quite how they would put it. But like literally thinking of loving your wife is the gayest thing. I mean, we've seen here Kampe's attitude toward his wife being sold into the brothel. He's just like, okay, well, it's for the sake of my Lord's honor. Yeah, great. All right, fine. You know, it's not, he doesn't have to take, think anything of it, right? And that's a proper attitude for, the, for this, uh, this, these ethics. And by contrast, it, in the 19th century, Japanese who converted to Protestantism uh, were it was precisely they would take walks together with their, you know, taking a walk with your beloved and like going to Bible study with men and women together. And, and this was seen as this is a new sexual morality, which is good for capitalism. It will make Japan modern. Right. And this is what we need to do. And adopting Christianity is part of being modern and it's part of being uh, white and being entitled to have an empire and, and all of this, you know, you can see that in Kunikira Doppo's uh, Meat and Potatoes, right? The, the character that is like went to Doshisha University, which was the Protestant university in Kyoto. He uh, has had a beloved. He had a, a fiance with whom he would take walks. He would take walks out, you know, and this is a <laughs> this is a modern Protestant thing. This is not something a fucking samurai would be caught dead doing taking a walk with his wife <laughs> come on um and uh the fantasy of the etahinin being somehow like this is the this is the criminal this is the face of the criminal this is a bourgeois modern conceit of you know the reserve army of labor the lumpen proletariat the the people who are starving and dying on the street or they're at each other's throats um hustling doing what they need to survive as a gangster, right? They're, it's, uh, you know, in the actual Edo period, I don't know of any evidence that samurai would be attacking the outcast classes. Why would, and the outcast, that, that's not, that kind of crime and that kind of urban um, setting is a thoroughly capitalist thing. So we see typically this Japanese fascist from Ishin no Kai that's on YouTube. He is peddling a fantasy that is, you know, like something out of a Disney movie or something and has about as much relationship, maybe even less, uh, to the reality of the samurai. You know, any samurai wouldn't go on a walk with their wives. They wouldn't be saying, Taisetsu no Kimi. No, because what does Kampe say? He's basically saying, you know, my beloved wife, I want you to uh, keep sucking and fucking and doing all the work at the brothel, make the customers really happy uh, because that's where the value comes from to the money, to the honor that I'm getting back through this whole exchange whose ultimate object is class position, class status. And everybody really does want that. So what, where does that come from? This, this is the structure that these families that are have narrowed and narrowed right and under class society for the purpose of passing on 
property, private property, whether that's physical, whether that's means of production, whether it's the, the first private property, which is the woman's body, which is the means of production of human beings, uh, or if it's class status, like in this samurai case, right? There is your precious traditional family. That's a traditional family. Okay, when a man and another man love each other very much and they want to share class status or land or business or something like this, right? For us, what would we want in the kingless generation? We want more community, more connection, more family in a way, right? In a way, we want more family. That's what originally human beings have. That's what naturally human beings do. They are connected to one another in a myriad ways, a variety of different kinds of relationships, right, that we can't even imagine today. We're like, we're like, uh, you know, we're the primitive ones. We're the primitive ones today. We can't even imagine. We just, we only know brother, sister, wife, husband, uh, mother, father. We don't, you know, I think that, I know that in the 200,000 years of human history, human existence, right? It doesn't survive in history, most, most of it. But that time, those people had a infinitely more complicated rainbow of different relationships to all different kinds of people, right? Much more fluid, uh, but no less, uh, much richer as well, much, much richer than anything we can imagine today. And so let's move toward that. Let's move toward that. That's what I'd say. Right. If you want to call that ab- abolish the family, I don't know if that's quite the right. I don't know if that's skillful or not. You know, that might not be an upaya to use the Sanskrit term. Right. It might not be the upaya. What is it? You know, what should we call that? What should we call that? I don't have an answer ready. Uh, so maybe I'll I'll leave us with that for now. We can discuss it on the discord. I'd love to hear your ideas about how to how how to move toward this you know uh i don't you know i don't know about the kind of polyamory that people talk about today you know i think it's pushed in society partly as a way of atomizing people further i don't know i think there might be some amount of that um do we need to in a kind of much like we would have a revolutionary party with democratic centralism uh perhaps do we want to have a provisional, you know, family structures that maybe are are strengthened and have, you know, a kind of strong outs, outer shell uh, to get us through the times that are upon us today and the changes that must come, right? But we cannot lo- lose sight of that rich and deep rainbow of egalitarian and um, nevertheless rich, diverse uh ultra extended director's cut uh uncut family structure that i cannot imagine but it existed in the past it existed in the very recent past for some and it must be reborn with more support more connection more love than ever but yeah i do think in this way the family is akin to the prison we still are going to need those prisons for a while, right? I think it'll be several generations. It might be some, you know, century or, or something, right? Before 
these more fluid uh, structures would emerge. Uh, you know, this is exactly what Alexandra Kolontai is all dealing with. She has a really interesting little short story about a uh, wife of a NEP man, the new economic policy that was instituted to develop uh, strong in, in industry in order to compete against the West and fight against basically every capitalist country in the world that had declared war on the newly formed Soviet Union. They needed to just hit the accelerator and, uh, you know, slam on the gas and make those omelets, crack those eggs, because everybody, ultimately, Hitler was coming, and they knew that. And and Kollontai knew that, too. You know, she had all kinds of criticisms of Stalin, but she really kind of kept it to herself because she wanted to beat Hitler more than uh, she wanted to beat fascism. Right. And uh, however, though, she really was dealing with so how are in socialist construction, we can provide daycares, we can socialize the care work that is done as basically slave labor by women in the household, socialize that and and make it, uh, you know, come from all of society. And she has all kinds of really rich ideas about the coming society and the new kind of what what kind of new kinship structures can be built right and it was uh right so i i think i do think that these things can uh some prefigurative level of of construction socialist construction in the realm of kinship can and should happen maybe uh however of course the the dark side of that the thing to avoid would be some hippie shit, right? We definitely have history of the the whole hippie thing, you know, where it's like, oh, free love, you know, everything is all but barriers are are down, you know, and this is this in itself is revolutionary. Well, that's like letting all the counter revolutionaries out of prison. That's like, uh, you know, letting all the fascists keep their newspapers and their bullhorns and their bully pulpits, and uh, let them keep indoctrinating people. Let them keep changing human nature to suit their ends. You, you're not, you know, that's not going to get you to the place you want to go, right? And this is a good uh, illustration of the Sanskrit term upaya, isn't it? And how it's different from a concept of truth, per se, right? Or, or uh, good, per se, right? The good, we, would ha- we have this idea, where do we want to go? That would be a stateless, classless society that has no patriarchy, that has no um, family structures that are narrow and specialized for passing on private property, but rather has the richer, expanded family that we know, right? And uh, it can, and that we can't even imagine really the t- the true dimensions of what it would take under fully automated means of production, uh, you know, luxury space, communism, all all of that, right? But yeah, we should be careful of anybody who's like, yeah, baby, uh, <laughs> free love. Because, you know, that ends up being like, uh, yeah, let's start a commune and a cult and, you know, everybody just has sex with me and all this kind of thing, right? Um, that's what anarchistic kind of stuff gets you uh, without skillful means, right? You might have the truth. You might have a picture of goodness where you want to go. But you don't know how to get there. You don't know what is the path that will get you there. So you don't have the nupaya. So, and that's what you need here, right? 
So I think that that can get us started in in thinking about this and in acting in in ways to to move us there. But yeah, the family is like like the prison. I sound like Foucault saying, "Oh, things are like prisons." Um, no, it's not quite. I mean, it's pretty different from that, I would say. But uh, and I hope you agree. Uh, the sex trade is is a similar issue, right? You know, you can have some leftists who will kind of say, "Yeah, baby." Uh, we should, uh, you know, I've had, I was listening to a presentation somewhere that will remain anonymous, uh, recently that was very Ted talky and was very much like basically, you know, oh, there's these poor starving people now due to marketization of everything. So let's also marketize, uh, sex and we'll legalize the sex trade and uh, totally decriminalize and, and destigmatize. And if you're against that, you know, you're clearly a prude and you want to stigmatize these poor people, uh, etc. But again, look at human history. Look at the broad sweep. What can you learn? Uh, indigenous peoples in the Philippines, I know for one, had no word for sex worker originally. Uh, and they had to use the Spanish word puta. Uh, and it, when those kinds of relations were forced on them, because of course they didn't commodify sex. They didn't even, they didn't even commodify food. Right, you don't have to work to get money to buy food. Uh, similarly, selling sex would not be something that would occur to, again, the vast majority of humanity over two hundred thousand years. So the family is the bourgeois family, for example, which is what we have most recently now. There's nothing natural about it, just as there's nothing natural about the bourgeois state. What do we want to do in the future? We want to smash the apparatus of the bourgeois state. We want to smash the apparatus of the bourgeois family, maybe? Uh, yeah, probably. And, and institute something. But, you know, it's got to be organic and it's got to be probably... Uh, it's not going to wither away immediately, just like the state isn't going to wither away immediately. Kevin Rashid Johnson the foremost Maoist theorist in America today. I don't think I mentioned properly that he is behind bars. He is uh, entirely operating a, a party, a Black Panther party, behind bars largely. A lot of the people are in, on the inside, right? And he's actually uh, writes beautiful writings and does beautiful graphic art, uh, all of this while incarcerated, while suffering uh, just horrible human rights abuses, torture, uh, beatings, uh, you name it, right? And he himself says that the prison cannot be immediately abolished. We need those fucking prisons. Uh, you can't just let all the counter-revolutionaries go and the murderers and the, right? You can't let them go right away okay we need those still uh but then at a certain point once old habits are are gone and you know it will wither away the state will wither away and violent repressive uh tools like the prison will also then wither away uh something similar might happen with the family uh, another point that i don't think i ever quite got around to making properly is Kolontai, right? Kolontai's short story. It's called Sisters. And the story goes that there's the main character is a woman who is speaking to a, a sort of female uh, government bureaucrat in, in a kind of welfare office and sharing her 
story, and her story is that she and her husband had worked and fought together in the Russian Revolution. They were equals and comrades on the line of battle together, and they formed a wonderful relationship there. But once the revolution was over, then the NEP starts up and this guy becomes a high-ranking executive in one of these state enterprises now. So he immediately snaps into sort of, oh, I'm a wealthy uh, businessman, basically, and gets into a sexual morality that is associated with that, where I get to go out drinking all night and I get to bring prostitutes home. And right, and he, he does horrible damage to his family and the old partnership from the revolution just means nothing to him now. And because he's like, you know, oh, I'm a successful businessman. I'm a, I can, I can have, I can buy all the women. I can have, you know, and this is a very uh, class society based mentality. This is not at all where he should be. Right. And so Kolontai is trying to wrestle with how do we build socialism in the family. Right. So that really brings me to my, my thesis, I think. I think my thesis is something like the family is like a people's army. The family is, you know, a people's army similarly is something that you need to have for the people to make change, uh, right? It has to have coherence. It has to have a structure, right? And the thing that we imagine replacing it will have structure as well, but it just, you know, it'll be more expansive, uh, in, in certain ways, and there are things in sort of ancient societies that prefigure that, as we have seen, right? We, can, we went back to ancient Sumer for quite a while, uh, and we can see the antithesis of, of what we want in uh, Chushingura there. I think um, even the most right-wing sort of uh, Japanese uh, that w- with whom I have read this uh, always is surprised and shocked, scandalized by the actual content of the sexual morality that is in Chushingura because they think that it's the traditional family, but the, this is not the traditional family that they had in mind, right? Because the traditional family they think of is a, is a weird bourgeois myth. And by the way, just to be really clear, I'm not saying that what's in Chushingura is uniquely perverse because it's Japanese, not at all. I think that's very universal to uh, feudal aristocratic morality across the world. You see that in ancient Greece, right? I mean, to be sure, medieval Europe has this, a certain kind of, it's a different cuck fetish, right? Like with, with um, the actual real chivalry is also super different from the kind of quote unquote chivalry that people, uh, that the bourgeoisie invents and imagines in the 19th century, right? Bushido as well in Japan is, a total creation of the 19th century as we know it today, right? Projecting back for the sake of the bourgeoisie. And, and it's because in the Japanese case, they're hearing from Anglo-Americans all about how chivalry is the basis of the virtue of the capitalist class. And so they're like, oh, we need a, we need a chivalry. What's our chivalry? Okay, bushido. And it, we, here are the ways in which it allows you to be a capitalist and have a bourgeois family that is specialized for passing on capital, ownership of means of production, right? Meanwhile, the actual thing that they had in medieval Europe is a a different kind of thing. 
but it, it also amounts to a sort of cuck fetish because it often is about like having a crush, uh, a spiritual, uh, airy, uh, airy fairy spiritual crush on your lord's wife, right? With whom you would theoretically never uh, actually get it on, but uh, you are kind of, yeah, uh, it's unrequited thing and you know, and yeah, it's very, very cucked in a different way, right? Um, and it's precisely the sin of Kampe. Kampe, the main character in Chushingura that we looked at, uh, he, his sin is being a wife guy. His sin is... Um, Right. He was he, he and his wife were riding uh, while he was on company time. He was on the clock with uh, he should have been with his Lord. Uh, right. So he had actually the way that he atones for that is by offering up his wife. Right. And then again, like really being determined that she has to work the five years thinking she's going to meet me, even though I'm dead. Right. She has to work really hard. And the value that is in the money that ba- that buys back my honor comes from her doing the sex work really hard yeah so that's the logic there look at that look at look at that development we can of course we're coming back to this many many times uh we've gone really long here looking at all different things uh this was pretty ambitious but uh yeah i hope you can find something there uh at any rate the family is a people's army it is going to outlive its purpose someday uh, but and and we should be thinking about how to build a, a certain kind of revolutionary family, a kind of new family for new uh, humanity of the kingless generation. Uh, we should be thinking about that and looking for that road as it comes into view, right? Uh, yeah, that upaya, that that expedient means, which is not itself the true and the good, but it will get us to the true and the good. It's a vehicle. I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Ikahale kula nui ho kameha meha. Meole aloa ikahimana o. Mahope ho iao meku aloha.